this is a letter for Second John that invites us into living the Christian life on the true foundation of the Christian life. And although we're not going to be spending an awful lot of time in this book, just a couple of weeks, I'm actually really glad that we are going to it. Uh, of course, I picked it so you'd want me to be glad. But Second John presents a challenging message that we need to hear and we need to live. It's a message that is good to hear. As we, as we enter a new year, perhaps especially, it's a, it's a reorientating message. A message that challenges our assumptions about what it means to walk in Christian faith, to walk the Christian life, to believe in Jesus even. It's a, a message that calls us not just to acknowledge the gospel, but to be transformed by the gospel. It's a message that would call us to live a radically gospel-centered life in the midst of a gospel-less world. And that message, which we'll be digging into in two parts, is simply this, true love loves the truth. Or if I can expand on that just a little into kind of two parts, which is why that appears in two lines, uh, and it could be two titles for this series as we go through it. First, true love comes from the truth, and so believers in the truth must truly love. And two, true love is formed by the truth. And so what we believe really matters. The roots for why John writes this letter, I think you can find uh, way back in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 13. Um, on the night before he died, and, and really what I mean is, back in John's earlier years, the words that he heard Jesus say to him. On the night before he died, Jesus said to his disciples, including John, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. To summarize Jesus, love one another in a way that is informed by my love for you. And so display my love to the world. Or maybe another way, love one another with gospel-shaped, gospel-displaying love. So let's go to this letter, shall we? Um, I don't actually have my Bible open. So if you haven't got your Bible open, I'd invite you to do that. I was reading from Owens previously. Second John is a letter written uh, by the Apostle John, we understand, from church history and from almost all of the early manuscripts having the word John written at top, the top of them. Uh, it's written, uh, obviously, after the death and the resurrection of Jesus, uh, and, and, and the early church history places it somewhere in the late first century AD, although we can't really be a lot more specific than that. Uh, it's a time when divisions had begun to come out in many churches, and that really seems to be the, the centering context, the reason for the letter. Um, verse 1, you would have noticed, has a funny old phrase in it. Verse 1 addresses this letter to the elect lady and her children, by which we wonder, is this written to some strange, like to some woman who has kids and no husband, like, like, which is a possibility, but it's actually John's symbolic way, it becomes clear as he writes it, his symbolic way of speaking about the church. Uh, the church in this specific city he's referring to as the elect lady and her children. 
the, the church he's writing to is face, facing, though, divisions and facing breakaways. Uh, what, um, what these aren't is people leaving for good reasons. Um, there, is a, there is a good reason to leave a church, if you hear. Uh, there is, when you see a church that has uh, deviated from the gospel, that has left its gospel roots, that has, that has denied the fundamental truths of the Christian faith, that is a good reason not to be in that church because it has ceased to be a church by the ch Bible's definition. But that's not what's happening here. These divisions are arising in two kind of related consecutive ways. First, foremost, people are teaching false doctrine. False truth, or lies, I suppose, is what you call false truth, isn't it? Uh, similar, similar to 1 John, in a way, 1 John, uh, the same sort of issue came up there. People were denying essential truths about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. So in 1 John, it was a denial that Jesus is the Christ, John tells us. And, and in 2 John, it's a denial that Jesus came in the flesh, which comes out explicitly in our, in our second part of this, in chapter, verses 7 and 8, I think. Um, and this is important because 1 John leads us to see that although there are some things we may hold in difference, uh, and, and there are, there are plenty of things that Christians can believe but not hold so firmly that we say we can't be together as a church on this, Although those things exist, there are also things that we must hold with a closed hand. Do you understand what I mean by that? Things that we must not budge on, not allow to be eroded in the church. But beyond this denial of truth, there's a, there's a secondary issue. Well, like I said, one that, that results from the first issue. Because the truth of Jesus is being denied, the Christ-honouring love of the church is at risk. Do you see the connection? Gospel truth is under attack. So gospel formed, gospel displaying love is at risk. And so John writes this letter, uh, which, which calls the people of God to really believe the truth and so really love one another. This is a call to a, a radical form of love that you will not find outside of the people of God and outside of the word of God. John really establishes the basic point of the whole letter in his greeting, uh, which is fun because often we kind of skip over greetings, uh, but, but we shouldn't because often there is wonderful truth held just in the greetings of the epistles of the New Testament. Here's what he says. He says, The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because the truth that abides in us because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Now, do you see the flow of what he's saying here? <coughs> this letter is to a church, like we've said, the elect lady and her children, a church which the Apostle John loves, but not a church that he loves in just any old way. He, he loves them in the truth. The truth that he's referring to here is the truth that John's been on about ever since he heard Jesus say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's the truth about Jesus, the gospel truth. And everyone who loves the truth also loves the church, John says, right there. Not only I, but also all who know the truth love them. 
because of this mighty truth which will be with us forever. We love each other. And on this basis, John goes on in verses 4 and 5 and he commands the church, and this is as much us as it is them, for we are the church, uh, to love one another in this truth-formed way. Do you see how central, central and essential the relationship of truth and love are to one another in, in the Bible? Uh, and therefore, to, to the Bible's understanding of living the Christian life, you can't pull them apart. You can't have real, genuine truth without real, genuine love. And you can't have real, genuine love if you don't understand the real, genuine truth, according to the Bible. And what we'll spend the rest of our time doing today is looking at two ways that this works out in this passage and how they apply to our lives. Uh, although you can't take truth and love apart, like I just said, what we're going to do is we'll be emphasising the love element of the truth and love sandwich uh, this week. It's only got two pieces of bread. Um, and, and, and next week we're going to emphasise the truth element of the truth and love. So here's our first, uh, our first way that this works out that we see in this passage. Truth cannot be without love. Perhaps better... Truth cannot be believed without love. Verse 4 describes the love that John is calling the church to as walking in the truth. This, this might sound basic to you. Um, for, for a lot of Christians, I'm sure this sounds very basic. Of course, truth and love have to be together. But so much of what happens across churches fails to recognise this. So much of how we live would be enriched by knowing this and so often fails to recognise this in the way that we live, especially towards one another. For so many Christians, we treat truth, we treat our faith kind of like a, a list of checkboxes. Uh, kind of a, I believe in the Trinity, check. I believe Jesus died for my sins, Check. I believe Jesus Christ is Lord. Check. Done. I've believed it. I can go and do some other stuff now. But true faith in the truth isn't demonstrated by a checking a box. True faith in the truth is demonstrated by the way it transforms your life. So if you believe that Jesus died for your sins, that the eternal Son of God gave his place in heaven in favour of coming down to earth and dying to save you, an undeserving sinner, lowered himself into your world, and even lower than your world, let's be honest, you weren't born in a manger, uh, and carried all of the weight of your sin and all the weight of your punishment. If you believe in such undeserved love, then you will love. And especially you will love those that Jesus has clearly placed his love upon by calling them into his body, into his family. If you believe in the Trinity, how do easily, if you've been a Christian for a while, if you haven't, uh, then you might hear the Trinity and be like, ah, oh, the Trinity, the what? But if you've been a Christian for a while, how easily do we check the box of the Trinity without realising the deep implications of the Trinity? 
if you believe in the eternally loving and perfectly perfect community of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that the Father sent his Son for you, that the Son chose to come for you, and that the Spirit testifies even now to the glory of God through the gospel, and that by the action of the Trinity, you have been brought into that love relationship, drawn into the love of the Trinity of that community, because Jesus said that he would have, sorry, that we would have the love with which the Father loved him before the world was created, then you will never be content to do anything to any one of God's people except for love them. It leaves you without options there. His love compels us. It, 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 it drives us. It commands us. If you believe in the lordship of Jesus, once again, easy checkbox, right? You will walk confident that your self-sacrificing saviour is in control and he is equipping you with everything that you need to reach out to your brothers, to your sisters in love and not offer excuses, not avoid them, not keep away from them. Don't get me wrong, I, I know it's hard to love Christians sometimes, to love people sometimes. But not as hard as it was for Jesus. <laughs> and he has poured such love into us that we can do nothing but love one another if we see it rightly and believe it. Doesn't this rebuke the common brand of Christianity, which is intellectual only, the checkboxes Christianity? Doesn't this rebuke the idea of a, of a solely personal faith? You know, I, I believe in Jesus. I worked that out with him. You don't have anything to do with it. And yet your faith, which is personal, you have a personal faith. You personally chose to trust in him. And if you personally did, then it will have corporate implications, body implications, the, the church implications. You will love. Christian faith can't be lived out alone. It's, it's, a, it's an oxymoron. It doesn't work because to do so denies the gospel that the faith is in, do you see? Here's number two. Love has to be defined by the truth. In our culture, we're trained from very young in a whole variety of ways, in a whole variety of definitions of love. Uh, some of those are so subtle that we fail to see them. Some of them are so blatant that they kind of hit you over the head. Um, you know, the catch cry of our day, isn't it, is love is love, right? Anyone run into that one? Uh, to which the Bible firmly, lovingly, compassionately responds, yes, love is love. And so you do not have a right to redefine love. God defines love. This is so important. As we define love, uh, what we think love is, uh, especially how we are to love one another, it has to be formed by the truth. It's not based on our subjective understanding of what love is. It's based on the love that we see in the Word. And this comes out in two ways from this passage into our lives. Um, First, 
How we define love must be a gospel-formed definition of love. What that means is we define love by looking at Jesus. And then we seek to live by that. John says that he loves the church in truth. Meaning that the love of Jesus is also the, the standard of Christian love. He also says his love is because of the truth, later in that sentence, meaning that the love of Jesus is also the power and the motivation for Christian love, you see. What it means to truly love someone is to truly be like Jesus towards them. We we need one clear, obvious necessary implication of this is we need to know him we need to spend our lives here this is why we're always pushing towards hey read the bible because the bible is where we come to know him more we need to relate to him we need to live in prayerful relationship with him we need to live in a community who lead us towards him as well We need to know Jesus well enough that when we are confronted with an anemic or a false Jesus, a partial Jesus, when someone says, you know, I believe in Jesus, I believe believe Jesus is, is, is loving, so he would never call me out on that. That and know him enough to know, no, 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 he's loving enough to call you out on that. The the second way we see this principle working out in this passage. The principle that love has to be defined by the truth is that John writes, uh, this is love that we walk walk according to his commandments. Truth-formed love obeys the commands of God. Isn't that a a drastically different way than what we tend to think about the commandments of God? We tend to think about the commandments of God as, as another checklist, probably, and yet... The Bible says we live out our love. We are built up as a people of love as we obey his commands. Of course, Jesus said the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God and another is like it, love your neighbour as yourself. Really, what we see here is just an extension of love being defined by the gospel because the commands of God call us to be like Jesus, to reflect the gospel. So God's commands lead us to walk in true love as defined by the gospel. Here, what we'll do, and and we're nearly towards the end of this thing, is I'm going to give you a couple of examples. Now, it should be self-evident, I'm sure, that this is the sort of principle, these ideas of truth informing our love that would walk into any part of your life, that that have never-ending applications. I'm just going to bring out a couple just to give you a taste of how this works. Just put a bit of legs on it. You learn that a Christian brother or sister is in sin. Might be a major sin, you know, maybe there's talk of adultery going around. Uh, It might be, you know, what we so callously refer to as a minor sin. Uh, Maybe maybe someone might continually badmouth others. Uh, It could be anything any sin. There are worldly responses to that situation aplenty. Uh, And they come so naturally still to us so often. 
don't they? And they vary, but they're all wrong. Some people might respond in shock and disgust, turning their nose up at a, at a brother. Maybe even, maybe even going and, and talking to others about it, uh, whilst not talking to them about it, avoiding the person. Others would avoid the confrontation. I, th I think this is probably where my bent naturally lies, um, if, if I'm being honest. Uh, you know, kind of just, it's too difficult, it's going to cause too much confrontation, let it be. It's not that big a deal anyway. After all, aren't we meant to love? Aren't we meant to be unified? When it break unity to go and talk to this brother or sister about it, when it cause a big ruckus, ruckus whatever the word is. Um, and others, again, would uh, take the chance to beat the sister over the head with the sin, right? Finally take the chance to show that I'm better than them. Woohoo! John's a better Christian. Because I didn't sin and you did. You are condemned for your sin. But gospel-formed love rejects all of those. Gospel-formed love motivated by the Saviour who sacrificed to step into our world, follows the Saviour's example and steps into the life of the sinner. Lovingly moves towards them and calls them, not condemning them, but calling them back to grace and repentance. What's more, the commands of God inform how we do this, don't they? You know, Matthew 18, for instance, Jesus instructs us, if your brother is in sin, go, talk to him about it. If he won't listen, take one or two others and go and talk to him about it. If he still refuses to listen, take it to the church. Now, doesn't that buck against our idea of love? You know, that, that, that someone's sin would be made public to the people of God. Doesn't that kick against us? Uh, don't we, don't we balk at the idea of sin becoming public? D but do you see how different the worldly love is to gospel love? Gospel love offers assistance. Gospel love offers love, obviously. It offers endless grace, but it never stops short of calling sin, sin. It would not be loving to do so. And it does every measure it can to lead the brother or the sister back into reconciliation, back into unity, back into the love of Christ. How many, how many people have fallen into deep sin and eventually left the faith that they once proclaimed because they got so wrapped in sin that wasn't dealt with, that no one thought worth addressing, that they were never called out on it and, and, and eventually it just became their God rather than God? That's happened so many times, countless times. How many people might fall into hell because we want to spare them embarrassment today? How many churches fall apart because of festering sin and unrepentance which hardens hearts and breaks relationships like the Bible says it will? The gospel calls us to love enough to speak and to seek restoration and reconciliation, to speak in love the truth. Let me give you another one. Suppose you see a brother or a sister in need. 
Perhaps they're on the verge of homelessness. Perhaps they're struggling to put food on the table or to keep their car running. By the way, another wonderful Christian responsibility is to come to our brothers and sisters with our needs, to be open with each other in that. But wouldn't the worldly response be, you know, maybe, maybe to help a bit, do enough to make myself feel better about myself? That's an easy one, isn't it? Doesn't that come naturally to us? Help out a little. Or, or, or maybe to ignore. It's too hard, can't go there, too busy at the moment. Or, or you know, related to that, to rationalise. It's, you know, it's their own fault. They didn't manage their money well. Um, it, it got, they're going to be taught a wonderful lesson through this. I wouldn't want to get in the way of that. <laughs> they're learning an Im- important thing here. Or, or, or some such like that. Gospel-formed love is willing to sacrifice for the brother because Christ sacrificed for me. Gospel-formed love is willing to forego comforts for my sister because although Jesus was rich for my sake, he became poor. Gospel-formed love takes time to help. Gospel-formed love takes time to hear it, it, it comes alongside, it listens to the real struggles, not just offering kind of quick fixes so I can move on with my life. Gospel-formed love hears the command of Romans 12.5 to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice and is willing to enter the struggle and come alongside the brother even though it might mean grief for me. Gospel-formed love hears the words of Scripture that asks, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? And takes the command of God seriously, so choosing to live according to the gospel. Guys, we're not just called to gospel-formed love because it's the right thing to do, and we're not just called to it because it's the best thing for us, although both of them are true. It is right, and it is the best for us. But there's more to it than that. Remember what Jesus said. He said, by this, all will know that you are my disciples. By what? Yeah. By your love for one another. By the Christ-like, gospel-formed love that you have for one another. Gospel church, don't we want to be a gospel-formed church? Isn't this where we want to be? Don't we want to reject the old ways, put off the old self and put on the new? Don't we want Christ to be displayed through us? Don't we want the world to smell the power of Jesus on us as we live our lives and and, and then be led to the inevitable questions of where this gospel odour comes from? God's spirit through God's word and by the power of of the gospel of God's Son is inviting us into this today. Would you pray with me? Lord, we come openly confessing our weaknesses here. I want to I pray for every Christian in this room that we would that we would know the love that our that the gospel displays to us, the love of Christ so glorious and high above us and more than we will ever be called to. I pray that we would know the love that that leads us to live in and that we would live in it.
yeah, Lord, help us to be formed by your gospel. Help us to reject the ways of our, of our culture, of our nation that, that would limit love, that would give a deficient definition of love. Help us to walk in ways that show the world that you are so glorious in love that we are led to love one another. Let us not rationalise our way out of this, Lord. Let us not place other priorities above that which you have placed at the top of our lives. Let us not break apart that which God has placed together in his church. But let us be a people who flow with, who reveal, who live out the love that we have received. I pray it in Jesus' mighty name, the name of the Saviour who loves us. Amen.